It's Jonah 3, and we'll begin here at verse 1. Hear once again the infallible, the inerrant word of our God. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose, and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger? That we perish not. And God saw their works. That they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil. That he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. That's far the reading of God's word. And may he bless it to our hearing. Even this evening. Before we come to our text this evening. I think it's right for us to reflect on the book, especially as we come to what many would argue is the climax of the entire text, and and ask ourselves that question that we began with. What is this book about? I think it's a striking thing that as you look through the commentators, as you even listen to most preachers, the emphasis of the prophecy is primarily placed in evangelism. Most will say that this is a text that is really modeling for us what our missionary endeavors ought to be. Or even you could go perhaps a step further. This is really how you and I are supposed to be thinking about evangelism as we pray, that our God can do such great things as we find in this text. I would say that's predominantly the way this text has been taken for the past century or so. But friend, what strikes me as we look at this text and as we've been in this now for several months What's striking is, as we come to Nineveh, this climactic chapter in many ways, we have so much more information than just the conversion of the Ninevites. So much of this book, all that has gone before and even what comes after, is not so much concerned with the conversion of Nineveh itself. But again, as I said to you over and over again, we are given vignettes of repentance. First, the mariners, of course, then Jonah, and now Nineveh. And so as we look at this text, I think it's wise for us to remember that the text itself emphasizes not just repentance of others. Of course it does. The application to evangelism is legitimate. But predominantly, the book sets before us pictures of repentance that you and I are to emulate. This is a word that was given to the visible church, that she might model a repentance that at the time she certainly didn't. And so as we come to Jonah 3, 
it's important for us to remember as well that we are looking at that next vignette, that next picture of repentance. And so we're moving away from Jonah. We're coming into Nineveh. And what's striking as we look at our text this evening, which is really verses, oh, verses 5 down to verse 9, you'll notice that up to this point we have received narrative. One narrative followed by another. But in this text, starting at verse 6 and downward, we find what's striking, really, we find the emphasis changes into really quoting to us a decree in its fullness. In fact, we're given the decree and we're given something of its prehistory. But that really is the focus. The, the movement of the text moves us away from the narrative, away from the history to give us this document, the decree of the king of Nineveh. That's crucial for a few reasons. First of all, because the text in verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7 tell us quite a lot about the inception of this decree. We're told here that the word came unto the king. Of course, the word here being Jonah's preaching. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And here's the king's response. And it's quite detailed. He laid his robe from him and so on and so forth. The behavior of the king is very much emphasized in the text. And all this shows us, of course, is the spiritual influence this preaching had upon Nineveh, really upon a serious highest ruler. What we're supposed to see here in dramatic waves is how the word of God has penetrated the palace. And more than that, how it has penetrated the heart of the king. And from that, then we have the decree itself. This is a decree that he, out of his repentance, proclaims, publishes. It's the decree of the king and his nobles. And here's the, here's the decree itself. It's given to us in verse 7 and following. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God, if who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? That's the decree. And I read that to you again just to emphasize that there are a number of components to the decree. First of all, you have two kinds of precepts, negative and positive. And then, of course, that concluding question. The first precept is negative. Let neither man nor beast feed nor drink water. This is manifestly a short fast. The obligation is for man and for beast to be deprived not only of food, for which somebody could go some considerable time without, but even without water. Assyria in its history outside of scripture has all kinds of records of fasts. But a fast of this character is always of the shortest duration. And what does that tell us? They really believe God. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 41 days and Nineveh may be no more. 41 days and this city with such a wonderfully, wonderfully ingrained history in the history of the world. This city that has withstood so many conflagrations in the world. 41 days, it may not be here any longer. They take the Lord at his word. This is a short fast and an earnest fast. But then take the positive precepts. They are to be covered with sackcloth, verse 8. And they're also to cry mightily unto God. And then, of course, they're to turn everyone from his evil way. 
And I'll just note, though we'll spend more time considering these things, I'll just note at this stage, isn't it striking that these men, these kings and these nobles, recognize that mourning is insufficient in itself. They recognize that the kind of repentance that is required of them is not merely tears and sackcloth. They must be people who turn genuinely, turn everyone from his evil way. It's a striking thing. But then, of course, you come to that third and that final part of the decree, and it is part of the decree. It's the question, who can tell if God will repent? Uh, Friend, in that question, there's a lot of deep theology. Uh, There's deep divinity here. But I'll just note at this stage that we have to recognize that this question is a question that is consonant with genuine repentance. This is consonant with one who is genuinely turning to the Lord. And how do we know that? How do we know that Nineveh actually engages in biblical repentance? Well, I'll take you to a number of examples, but just for now, I'll just remind you of our reading from Matthew 12. Christ there tells us without any question, Nineveh certainly did repent under the preaching of Jonah. And so this question is very much consonant with one who turns to the Lord. Now, before we go any further, uh, if you were with us two weeks ago when we took up the fifth verse of Jonah 3, you might expect that this would be a sermon about fasting. Uh, That really is, of course, the kernel of the decree that we have before us. But I want you to notice that this is not really a fast sermon. What follows is far more a discussion about what genuine repentance is. And that's not because, of course, fasting is outside of the text. Fasting is very much in the text, and really we ought to be looking to this text to help us think about how to fast biblically. But when we think, friend, about fasting, private or public, what we see in this decree is not just the exercise itself, but even the way in which the exercise is supposed to be carried out. You have, if you will, not just the matter of fasting, but its manner. You have here demonstrated for us repentance. And that, of course, is what is necessary to any who would really fast to the Lord. And so our theme for this evening is just that, that true repentance is that which is worked by God alone. And every part of our text, and really every part of the degree, indicates as much. I want us to see this as far as it concerns the instrument of this repentance, the injunctions that it brings, and the interest that it carries. And so take first of all, take first of all the instrument. You have it again in verse 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. A friend, it's important for us to remember what we've said already up to this point about the preaching of Jonah. Uh, notice, first of all, verse 2. Preach unto it, says the Lord to Jonah, the preaching that I bid thee. And then we're told here, so Jonah arose according to the word of the Lord. And then we're told that the people of Nineveh believed God. A friend, what should strike us immediately is that this is a city who has been under the preaching of God's word, and in it they have discerned the voice of God. It is Jonah's preaching, but they take Jonah as the mouthpiece of Jehovah. In other words, when they hear the word of God preached, 
They really are persuaded that it is God. It is not Jonah that they believed. The text emphasizes it is God. His testimony that they believe. And it is thus God's word that Jonah that Jonah preaches. God's word that the king hears. And I want you to notice, friend, that that is the principal focus of the king when he issues this decree. It is the word from on high that he's heard. It is the preaching of God's word that the king has in his focus. And friend, this is the very thing that repentance always must look to. The word of God, and really the preaching of the word of God, is the principal ordinary means to repentance. I want you to just think that in relation to what's gone before in the book. I said to you already that we've looked at several images, as it were, cross-sections of repentance thus far. And what sets this case in chapter 3 apart from all the ones that have gone before is the fact that the mariners and Jonah respond to God under chastisement. They respond to God when the storm comes or when they're plunged into the deep. Nineveh responds to God's word when it's preached. Friend, I want you to just think about how staggering that is. What we have in Jonah 3 is a real contrast. Not in terms of repentance. In every case we should see the repentance as genuine. But in terms of the means. Jonah's preaching is the principal focus that God uses to induce Nineveh to repent. It's a striking thing. There's even a further contrast that we can make. I want you to take, of course, the context, the historical context of this book. Jonah, of course, was a prophet for the northern tribes. He was a prophet for the ten northern tribes, that northern kingdom that had received so many prophets from the Lord, calling them to repent, and yet not one godly king could be found. In spite of all of the preaching, all of the preaching that these kings heard, not one king repented. Not one king numbered among them really loved Jehovah. And yet here is this one pagan king under the preaching of a single prophet. And under his preaching alone, he's brought to repentance. Again, friend, what we have in Jonah 3 is truly profound, even in contrast. But... But take, take Israel even in a broader sense at this stage. Jonah and Amos are near contemporaries. Here's what Amos says of his generation. The Lord says to them, I have smitten you with blasting and mildew. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increase, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Israel won't even respond when the storm comes. She won't respond when chastening comes. Well, what of the prophets? Again, now Jeremiah. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt, unto this day I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Not only was Israel chastened, not only did she feel tangibly the tokens of God's displeasure, She had prophets, not one, but many, and not in one period alone, but all throughout her history. It was impossible to recount her history without also seeing here the witness of God through his prophets. 
And yet she doesn't repent. Nineveh stands markedly in contrast with Jonah's own people, his own kingdom. In fact, what you have in Nineveh here is the very thing that the apostle describes, what he describes should be part and parcel of our experience in the church. Something that we ought to be praying for. I'm reading here from 1 Corinthians 14. He writes, If there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, under the preaching of God's word, he is convinced of all. He is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down in his peace, he will worship God and report that God is in you of the truth. It's the very thing you find none of it doing. Here you find a people quite genuinely settled, historically almost immovable, and yet simply under the preaching of God's word, they melt. They discern God's voice in its preaching. And that is sufficient. Under the Spirit's ministration, they're brought to say, this is God's word and we need to respond. You see, friend, even as we contemplate this, we shouldn't forget that preaching, like anything, will be received according to how we understand Or how we esteem the one who sends it. And I'm not speaking of the messenger, not the preacher. Threats and promises are esteemed according to how we perceive the author. Nineveh sees Jehovah as a God totally unlike their vanities. Unlike their idols. And because they esteem him, they tremble at his word. And friend, that really is the point, isn't it? Are we a people that tremble at God's word? Are we a people that tremble at his naked word? If we're not, friend, make no mistake, there's a theological problem here. We have a wrong view of God. You see, the scriptures hold out the believer as one who is precisely like the Ninevite in this case. Take Isaiah 66. To this man will I look, says the Lord, even to him that is poor and of a contrary spirit, and trembleth at my word. The naked word of God. As it was for Nineveh, so it should be for us. Something that we take seriously. Friend, when was the last time we've trembled at this word? When was the last time this word exposed to us our sin and our need to seek more grace? When was the last time we heard from this word a call to forsake the world, to take up our cross, to lay hold of Christ afresh? And did we tremble? Nineveh doesn't simply stand against the generation in Christ's day that rejected him. Does not Nineveh stand against even our own generation? Does it not so often stand against ourselves? We who so seldom tremble at such a word. This repentance has as its focus the word of God. That really is the instrument that the Lord uses. But that brings us to the injunctions. What are the things that this kind of repentance requires of those 
who would come to the Lord. And I said to you already that there are positive and negative. And this decree is given to us, I want you to understand, not superfluously. This is not a decree that's been given to us simply to entertain our historical fancy. This is a decree that is supposed to show us the depth of Nineveh's repentance. The decree is quoted here that we might get some sampling of what it is for this city to really tremble at the word of God, to believe God. And so these precepts are crucial. I want you to notice just first of all, before we even come to the decree, what this kind of repentance required of the king. Jonah, the prophet here, records for us the behavior of the king before he ever comes to his decree. And we're told, first of all, that the king lays aside his his robe. And friend, I want you to notice, that's not superfluous either. When a king lays aside his throne, throne, sorry, his robe, especially in this time, that was an, that was an example of royal self-abnegation. He, he was really removing himself, saying, I'm not even worthy of the throne. T- take example, just for instance, 1 Samuel 18. This is precisely what Jonathan does to David. Jonathan takes off his robe as a prince in Israel and he puts it on this shepherd, David. Why? Because he was testifying clearly the robe really belongs to him and not to me. To leave one's royal robe off was a very significant thing. And in our text, what does it mean? Well, note, not only is it an instance of a man saying, I won't even consider myself royal. He goes a step further and in his place he puts on sackcloth, on ashes. Before we ever get to the decree, the king emerges to us from the text as a man who was once a leader in sin, now becoming, becoming a leader in repentance. That's the emphasis. He's quite willing to lay low before God, not a king before God, but a man. And more than that, a man in sackcloth, in mourning, a man in ashes. This is how he leads his kingdom. And then you see here that man and beast in the decree are required to be covered in sackcloth themselves. And why the animals? There's so much speculation on this, but... But really, suffice it to say that in in Nineveh and really Assyrian culture, if you were victorious on the battlefield, your animals were decorated. Your animals were supposed to set before you. Your cattle were supposed to be placards, if you will, of your successes. And now these ones that were once, as it were, posters of jubility are now become signs of mourning. Once they were really the the carriers of a serious pride, and now they become tokens, pictures of grief. More might be able to be said on this point, but this is what's most crucial, I truly believe. Nineveh will now look like a city in mourning. Then you notice there, neither man nor beast will feed nor drink water. And the point of this Friend, in addition to reminding us that this is a short fast, is also this. There will be no labor in Nineveh. This decree by the king says all economic concerns are subordinated to this. All worldly interest is beneath our need to seek the Lord. Now, friends, we look at this, what you see here is a city that is really engaged in mourning. 
And again, this is not a fast sermon, but I want you to notice here that in this case, you do, of course, have an example of fasting. But it's, it's fasting not in a formulaic sense. It's fasting not in a ritualistic sense. It's fasting issued forth from real and genuine grief. A real trembling at God's word is really the fount and cause of this. And beloved, as you look at this, how different is this kind of fasting and experience different from Israel? Israel says, wherefore have we fasted? And thou seest not. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul and thou takest no knowledge? But take the Lord's response to those two questions. Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. This is quite opposite in of those examples, isn't it? You see, friend, as we look to this text for application, certainly private and public fasting should be in view. Both are duties in Scripture. Both are required. But I would go a step further, friend, and I would remind you that this text is also supposed to show to us, even through the fasting, what genuine repentance looks like, which is the prerequisite To any real fast. There is no greater concern. In Nineveh. Than that God. Would be pacified. Toward them. There is no greater concern. In Nineveh. Than that the Lord himself. Would tender forgiveness. And mercy. Beloved we don't fast. Aright. If that is not our prevailing concern. We are not a people who are mourning, who can quickly distract ourselves, go about our day, find other things to occupy our minds with. No, the kind of mourning, the kind of grief that this repentance comes with, will find it's, it's something that is pervasive, and it subordinates every other concern to it. You see, friend, if we're people who are Described as a repenting people. But we are in our homes and in private, not a mourning people. Could not the same question that was asked of Ezekiel be asked of us? You remember, Ezekiel was told, he was told very specifically by the Lord, Do not mourn when I take your wife. And this was Israel's response. Will thou not tell us what these things are to us that thou doest so? It's a strange thing, isn't it? A man who has just lost his wife and not mourning. Friends, is it a stranger thing for people to profess repentance and not also be a mourning people? Nineveh, again, friends, stands here as an example. Genuine mourning is required of those who repent. But I want you to notice thirdly and finally that there is a real interest In this decree. The decree is not made for mourning itself. The decree is not made for the fast itself. The decree has a focus. And that focus comes to us. I want you to notice in several ways. I want you to notice first of all. That the command here is to cry mightily unto God. That's part of the precepts of the decree. This is a fast. But if you will. This is a speaking fast. A crying fast. This is a fast. In which one is supposed to go before the Lord with their tongues unloose, obviously conveying their grief. But is that all? I want you to notice 
Friend, that as you look at this text, you come to the ninth verse, and you find the grounds for this crying, the grounds for this pleading. Who can tell that God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? This is part of Nineveh's decree. But I also want you to notice, friend, there are several things that this simple verse acknowledges. I want you to notice, first of all, it acknowledges that their mourning of itself is non-meritorious. It earns them nothing with God. It's a striking thing, isn't it? You could have left the 8th verse, and the assumption would be, well, if we've done all of these things, then certainly God will be pacified. We have earned, as it were, through our mourning, His grace. The ninth verse tells us that was not on their minds at all. Their mourning was non-meritorious. Secondly, it of course is a recognition of divine sovereignty. Who can tell? We will not presume. We will not say anything other than this. That they see, even under the preaching of Jonah, that salvation is truly and freely proffered to them. And God remains the alone dispenser of this grace. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? Salvation is truly, freely proffered to them. And friend, if they didn't have this in view, to go to God would be presumption. If they didn't have an offer of mercy in view and they were simply assuming that these things would bring them to God, it was presumption, not repentance, that we have in this text. Instead, what we have here genuinely are those who have discerned in the word of God that if God's word has come to them with such a warning, also even behind it is an invitation to return and find grace. You see here, this reminds us that the penitent eyes free grace even while he mourns over sin. And friend, this is so crucial. This is so crucial. I want you to notice how this question appears in Joel. It's a crucial text for us to understand this passage. In Joel 2, verses 12 to 14, you have a striking exchange between the prophet and the people. Joel writes, Turn ye even unto me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. And then, friend, this last verse. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? The prophet says the very question that the Ninevites are asking is the very question that is to be on the lips of those who are truly penitent in Israel who look to a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Nineveh minds the free grace of God, even as she rends her heart. And friend, every single penitent must be the same. In fact, there is no repentance without it. So often I think, friend, we look at a text like this, and we say, of course, of course Israel and Nineveh alike should have repented. Of course, we ourselves, seeing the heinousness of her sin, we should turn away from it. 
But friend, in order to do so, one must actually lay hold of free grace. There is no genuine repentance, no real turning from sin, unless one is really turning to God's gracious offer through Christ. Make no mistake, however, howsoever a man or a woman may mourn, howsoever many tears are shed in the name of repentance, if there is not a glance toward Christ, with at least this question, friend, it's not genuine. It's not true repentance. And that's the very thing that this book tenders to us. What's striking is, as we look at Jonah 4, not to get ahead of myself too far, but, but the prophet tells us there, in his exchange with the Lord, he says, I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth thee of the evil. The striking is, Jonah 3 and Jonah 4 both draw down on Joel 2. But isn't it striking that Jonah, his bone of contention is that the Lord is gracious. This is the thing that Jonah needs to learn. This is the thing that Israel needed to learn. And beloved, as we look at Nineveh then, this example of one city that trembles at the word of God, this example of a city whose repentance was deep, this example of a city that shows to us what it is to really mourn for sin, to make reconciliation with God our principal concern. This is a city that also models for us our need to only approach God while looking to the offers of mercy that he gives us through Christ. No repentance without it. None whatsoever. And friend, I would close as we apply this to ourselves with just this. The one who really repents, who turns to the Lord, he will always acknowledge, of course, the heinousness of his sin. These things will drive him to Christ. My friend, even as he does so, he will always remember, as Richard Sid said, and as I've repeated to you often, that the God whom he comes to has more mercy in him than we have sin in us. This is why so great a city, so heinously sinful a city as Nineveh was, could come to God with even this question. Who knows? Who knows? May we be a people then who do study this kind of mourning. A mourning that looks to sin, but a mourning that fixes itself upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he's clothed in the gospel for us. Amen.